the speed with which content is moving and technology is moving that we have to keep pace with, multiplied by channel, by audience, and by market, is virtually impossible to keep pace. So we've had to fundamentally rethink how we're building content to keep pace with this. And if we didn't have a solid operational backbone, we'd be hosed. I mean, that's to put it to put it bluntly. Welcome to Building Better CMOs, a podcast about how marketers can get stronger and smarter. I am Greg Stewart, the CEO of the nonprofit trade association, MMA Global. And that voice you heard at the top is Heather Freeland. She's the chief brand officer at Adobe and previously worked at Lyft, the Gilt Group, and Facebook, where her very first product was launching mobile ads. She also worked at the agency Digitas, MTV, and more. Today on Building Better CMOs, Heather and I are going to talk about climbing the career jungle gym, how Adobe is staying ahead of the curve on generative AI, why advertising is overhyped, and so much more. Now, this podcast is all about the challenges marketers face and unlocking the true power that marketing can have. Heather Freeland from Adobe is going to tell us how to do that right after this. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hey, Heather, how you doing? Good, good. Thanks for having me. I've been looking forward to this one for a little while. Because unlike many of the CMOs I talk to, you're, well, I'm sure everybody else's product matters to consumers, but your product matters to this industry tremendously. Yes. <laughs> in fact, you know, I can still remember in my early days when Macs were first introduced into the agency and Adobe were the underlying tools that the more, let's say, progressive of our creative team yes. got super fixated on trying to apply and use. Absolutely. One of the first ways we became known and loved. Yeah. What was the first product? Would you know offhand? I realize you weren't there, but uh, I don't know. Do you remember what the first product was for Adobe? Our first product was PostScript. And it's so funny. So back in high school and college, I actually worked as a graphic designer and this will date me. I sat at a drafting table, you know, and had to send out my copy Uh to be typeset. Uh And I used a exacto knife and wax to get it on the board. And I often joke that if things like PostScript had existed when I was in graphic design, I might have stayed in graphic design (laughs) rather than getting wax burns and paper cuts all day long. (laughs) So listen, I know that too, because I was in print traffic. Yes, there was a print. Oh, yes, traffic. (laughs) I was in print traffic. And so I used to have to be in the, you know, this is my first job. I had to send out the type to have it brought back with the right kerning. And I remember all, oh my God. And we'd have to call the messenger to deliver it because- Oh, it's just, and then I remember when the first Mac came in place and people were like, no, we can just do it here and print the ad and show it to the client tomorrow. Uh, and unbelievable. Mind blowing. Yes. <laughs> how far we've come. <laughs> oh my God. And how far we're about to go too with Adobe, which is going to make this kind of interesting. And Heather too, just maybe a little background for people too. How often have you now been ahead of marketing for a pretty good sized company? Two, three times? Yeah, three. So I most recently I came from Lyft running marketing there. And then I ran a good chunk of our B2B marketing at Facebook for seven and a half years, uh, marketing to advertisers and marketers, which was a lot of fun. And then previous to that was at the Guilt Group back in the day when they kind of invented the flash sale. You sprinkled in a little bit of work at Facebook along the way. Now, now yes. I guess we call Meta. Yes. What else is in there? You did a little bit of work, MTV too. Pretty exciting. Yes. So you're a cultural icon and one of my favorite agencies of all time, because I know because I had to compete against them at one point, which was Digitas. Yes. And I was there at a pretty special moment in time because it was all the very beginning of digital marketing. And we were kind of leading the transition from direct marketing to digital and mm-hmm. kind of trailblazing at that point, which was a lot of fun and had the opportunity to work with a lot of incredible people along the way there. Listen, I have a lot of board member CMOs that have come out of Digitas. So I think it's the center of many things that were great or people that were great and are great in marketing. So yes, congratulations on having been a part of that. Okay. So listen, this is an interesting conversation now that you're at Adobe. 
I mean, I think there's been a reemergence in creativity in the ad business. There's a greater respect for it at some level. There's more channels than we've ever had, than ever could have the proverbial shake a stick at. It's just, it's unbelievable what's happened. I don't have any idea how marketers can even assess in today all the options that they have, big budget marketers. I mean, it just takes a village. It truly does. And it's harder than ever. And yet sort of at the center of that has now been, you know, like the revolution in Creative Driven by Digital started with Adobe decades ago, as you and I identified. But now somebody's got to lead us into this next future And then we throw in a little dollop of a thing called AI. Oh, yes. (laughs) Maybe it'd be good, Heather. Why don't you take a few moments here? I I realize it's hard to encapsulate all that's happening with Adobe and shortness of the time here. But why don't you maybe give people, I think it'd be good for people to just hear an update on what Adobe is looking at and beginning to think of. I don't know. Try to give some basis to that. And then I'll pick up parts of that I want to get to on it. Absolutely. Well, Adobe, first and foremost, we serve a wide range of audiences from enterprise clients and marketers, small businesses, creators, and the like. And one of the things that we realized last year was that with the advent of generative AI, and we'd been working in AI for years already, but with the advent of generative AI, that was going to fundamentally change the lives, the workflows, the work, the impact of all of those customer segments. And so we were going to have to get ahead of that and think about what that future looked like. And what's been mind-blowing since that realization has been the speed with which the world has moved and changed. And that's no different here within Adobe. And so last year when we started playing around with, and we'd always been playing around with different pieces of this, but we started playing around with some of these new generative AI tools and saying, hey, this is going to be the future of our business. And we ultimately built our own model, Firefly, that is an image model. And what we've done is to build that with our end customers in mind. So what that means and what that looks like is that we think about it with the enterprise in mind. It needs to be commercially viable. We think about it with the creative in mind. It needs to amplify their creativity, not hinder it. We need to help the rank and file marketer scale and move faster and accelerate workflows. And we need to help people find new ways to accelerate their thinking and think even bigger. And so... As we've integrated Firefly, which is the generative AI model we've built into all of these tools, we're doing that all with the end consumer in mind, not just doing it with building the model to build the model. We're building it to serve a real use. And what's been exciting about this in particular is that I'm starting to see how this plays out across the entire kind of workflow of how people develop creative, whether that's in the ideation stage, then you take the ideation, you can come up with an amazing idea with the model, then you can actually bring it in to edit the model, move things around. It is absolutely magical what you're able to do with this integrated into things like Photoshop, Illustrator, et cetera. And whether you can integrate new color palettes, new forms that you can create your own fonts based on a simple prompt, create your own images, fill in or expand backgrounds. It's just, it is mind blowing every time I see something. So now with the kind of the next wave of AI and generative AI into our products, we're also just thinking much bigger about how do we improve the workflows of marketers, how we do connect the end-to-end experience from idea all the way to the customer using these tools to accelerate and make it easier for marketers across the board. Yeah, it's a crazy kind of world out there. I served as a CMO. I can't imagine the complexity of today's world with all the channels. So we're going to get into some of that. Make sure that people are really clear what Firefly is doing. Probably a lot know, but not everybody will. Yeah, so Firefly is our new set of generative AI and AI solutions across Adobe. So that includes our own models, like we're starting with an image model. There will be others to come. And we are bringing those in to basically power all of our tools. And it will give the end user a ton of optionality in terms of how they're creating, how they're integrating new images, new animations, you name it, into what they're building. And so it's really exciting to be able to literally type a simple prompt and someone with virtually no skills can create something that previously had only been in their imagination. 
So if you need a new image or you need to modify an image, Firefly is the backbone of doing that. Absolutely. Yep. And I think the modify is the key thing. The fact that the models are integrated into our tools is so powerful. So I can go into Illustrator and let's say I've created a beautiful image and I'm not quite sure I love the color palette or I want to match it to something else. I can type in a theme like neon green springtime and it can generate three different versions of green shades that I can choose from in something that in moments versus something that would have previously taken literally hours to do in that tool. So it's pretty magical. So listen, there's images that it can draw from all sorts of sources. I thought within Firefly, can't you create your own, in essence, image LLM, and you can create your own database of images that draws upon so that you have some, isn't that part of what you're really providing the kind of control that a corporation needs? Yes. So for example, you know, I mentioned earlier that being commercially safe is critical to us. And, you know, there are times where you don't need something to be commercially safe. If my team is coming up with storyboards for a new campaign and it will never see the light of day beyond, that's fine. However, all of us as marketers need to feel good about what we're putting out into the world and that there's not that legal risk. I've spent more than enough of my days uh, battling <laughs> with legal teams on what I can, I cannot use throughout my career that I know this is a pain point that all marketers experience. So what we wanted to do was make it easy. So there's two different things we did. One, we trained Firefly based all on Adobe stock images. So we knew that we had the rights to use them versus just scraping the internet more broadly so that when marketers use the models built on those images, they can feel comfortable and confident. And so far as that we're even indemnifying them if they use that model from any legal action so that they can feel confident in that. Second, as you alluded to, they can actually train their own models on their own IP. So for example, I'll take Coca-Cola because they've been doing some wonderful things in Gen AI. Coca-Cola would never show up if I typed into Firefly a can of Coca-Cola. Their imagery, their logo would not show up in there because it's trained off of things that we know are safe for commercial use. Coca-Cola could then train their own model incorporating their logo, all of their IP, their bottles, you know, you name it. And they could then build imagery and build a whole library of assets, what have you, off of their own IP in the same way, making it much easier for the marketers that support them around the world, whether that's at a local bottler or someone doing a brand campaign, can feel really comfortable and confident and work that much faster and more scaled because it's all built off of their IP. I seem to understand, too, that in generative AI image driven, that that material is not copyrightable. Correct. So there's all sorts of questions that still need to be resolved around this. Yes. Yeah. There are a lot of issues around that right now that are, frankly, you know, we're all figuring this out as we go. And one of the things that I'm particularly proud about is the leadership position that Adobe's taking here. I think there's a few things that we're doing. One, built in when you create any piece of content, we're building in something called content credentials so that it's almost like a nutrition label for content. So you can see what content was actually used to generate that image. So you know that it's not an original image, that you can see that it took content from XYZ model, from XYZ piece of content you may have integrated from XYZ image of your own so that you can validate the sources that this image was created from. And I think that's really critical to us because in a world of generative AI where people start to wonder, is that real or not? Um, you know, can I believe my eyes and what I see before me? Having the ability to understand what went into that image, whether it was an original image or created with generative AI is critical. So we're taking a leadership position there and then also have launched something called the Content Authenticity Initiative that is a bigger industry body that we're trying to use to help marketers, companies around the world really help inform policy and use the right tools so that they're using generative AI more responsibly. I love it, Heather. We felt the same way about the internet as much as we felt that that was turning into a little bit of a in a positive way, Wild West, it turned into a little bit of a negative Wild West. And somebody's got to step in and sort of guide around this stuff because it is going to be awfully complicated and markers are going to look for support. In fact, I mean, I think you realize the MMA here has jumped into AI pretty successfully. By the time this gets posted, we will have announced the largest coalition of marketers working to advance AI. 
for marketing, right? So I just finished a survey with them and I ran the survey through ChatGPT, all the results as I would, because we asked a lot of open-ended. You know what came up as the number one issue they wanted me to address? Not build enterprise value, not improve efficiency, not focus on greater creativity. You know, all the things that the MMA sort of made bread and butter that we do, that really find out how do we do stuff that improves the stock price, right? Responsible AI was number one. So what suggests to me, and I was talking to Kellen about this a little bit earlier today, you know, it suggests to me that, you know, listen, big companies, they have risk. They have real risk inherent to them and they need insurance to make sure that they're doing the right thing. And it sounds like from what you're saying here, Adobe's really going to step in, not just do cool stuff, but also make sure that it's safe and well-protected for the corporations. This is also an area where I think businesses and, you know, Adobe being one, but I think all businesses need to step up right now because I think what we have seen is that technology is not always the area of expertise of our policymakers. (laughs) Yes. Let's make sure that we get it right before they feel a need to step in and, you know. Exactly. And so that's where I think businesses really need to step up and make those recommendations, take the responsibility of educating them about the issues, the challenges, the potential threats and pitfalls, because then that will help us all be on our front foot, but also help influence in a way that is, beneficial to both the end consumer and to corporations, because I think if left to their own devices, I think it might be more challenging to really understand all the incredible nuances and complexities of this issue for policymakers. I think it is on all of us in the marketing industry to help educate folks in Washington. Okay. Well, listen here, let's shift. Remember the core topic here is around what do we think marketers don't necessarily Get. And that's not meant to be quite so critical. Business change, the world shifts, whatever. But just from an individual CMO's perspective, what do you think they don't fully understand? That They obviously would be better off if they did better understand it. Yeah. One of the things that I spend a lot of my days on in any job that I've had is actually not big, beautiful, creative ideas, but on operations. And I know that sounds silly for a brand marketer to say, (laughs) but I joke, you know, I said I started my career on the creative side. I then went to business school and fell in love with my operations class and kind of the structured thinking and the ways of optimizing things along the way to get things done. And what I then saw in reality when I went to places like the Gilt Group in its early days, very much a startup phase, and then when I joined Facebook... We were in the move fast and break things era. And there was a point when we realized that moving fast just to get things out the door does indeed break things in ways that are not ideal, but they don't always scale. And I think one of the things that I learned most in my time at Facebook was, and it was really a masterclass in operations and scaling a business globally. And so it meant that unless you had key principles in place, unless you had tools and systems that would enable you to scale, unless you focused on org models and operating models to get the work done, unless you had the right technology to enable all of that, you were never going to be able to scale at the pace of a company like Facebook. I mean, I joined and there were about 2,500 people there. And when I left, there were about 65,000. Wow. And so I think what I came to appreciate was how critical it is for marketers to really make sure you're enabling that scale just as much as the technology is. And it was interesting because I think what all of us as marketers are facing now is that, you know, it used to be you had a small handful of channels that you were creating content for. And now you not only have dozens and dozens and dozens of channels that each have their own specs, their own best practices, their own things that work better than others, but you also have customers who are demanding personalized content. And that's the content that works. And then you have creative that gets exhausted after four to six weeks. And then you have to scale globally. And, you know, one example, we did a launch recently where it was like we're producing 5,000 assets for a single launch. And you have to do that in, in weeks of time, not months of time. For a single campaign, single launch, 5,000 assets. 
It's mind-blowing, right? Yeah, it's mind-blowing. Just give some examples of where the 5,000 went, just so people have some, I mean, I, I, we could spend all day talking about all of them, but yeah, give an orientation to that. First, you can start with your channels. So you've got your web channels, all anything on our, our own website, of which there are many different surfaces. You have surfaces within product where you want to surface marketing messages. You have emails. You have static ads, you have animated ads, you have videos and films, you have television ads and connected TV ads. You, it goes all the way down. Then you multiply that by audiences. So you may have existing customers, you may have prospects, you may have people you want to win back, whatever those look like. You may have different customer segments. Then multiply that by the number of markets that you are launching in and that increases it exponentially. And so the speed with which content is moving and technology is moving that we have to keep pace with, multiplied by channel, by audience, and by market is virtually impossible to keep pace. So we've had to fundamentally rethink how we're building content to keep pace with this. And if we didn't have a solid operational backbone, we'd be hosed, I mean, to put, it, to put it bluntly. And so you really need to think about this in a way that is going to move more seamlessly, more fluidly, and keep pace with the, the speed of the technology and the tools we're launching. Do you get a sense, Heather, in speaking to some of your other brother and CMOs, you know, sister CMOs out there, that they're struggling with this kind of complexity? Every day. It is amazing to me, yeah. But are they involved in it or do they just kind of, does you think it gets off board? I've not actually heard a lot of other people talk about this, especially in the magnitude that you just did. It's really funny. So I end up talking a lot about this to other marketers, partially because we joke that I'm, one of the best parts about my job is being customer zero. Yeah. I am the person that Adobe markets to for our MarTech, for our creative tools, et cetera. And so often in my role, I end up talking to them about that. I met with a large cosmetics company, global cosmetics company last week as a part of a customer conversation. It was the number one challenge they have is they're building wow. assets to go globally for like each of their hundreds of cosmetic brands around the world. And they can't keep pace, you know, and they're one of the largest advertisers in the world. And they're trying to figure out how do I find efficiency in doing that, both through the tools I use, but also in how I operate, what's my operating model. And one of the more interesting things, just to bring it back around to Gen AI, is generative AI can enable a lot more people to develop content too. Which has its own good and bad to it also. Exactly, (laughs) exactly. Which makes it that much more important to have a system in place that provides some governance in order to be able to flow that into so that people aren't willy-nilly launching campaigns at a moment's notice with no brand integrity, no legal review, no you know ability to capture that content or how it's performing and reuse it. And I think what I'm also hearing is that the cost of content creation, this is the other thing I'm hearing from other marketing leaders, the costs are going through the roof because of the volume that's needed. So the key, when they're being asked to cut costs, wouldn't you far rather cut costs of content development than cut costs of activating that content with your customer? Absolutely. And so they're looking at it as a key lever in terms of driving efficiency and effectiveness of their marketing. Oh my God. So listen, nobody can see me. You listen, you can see me on video here. The others are only <laughs> audio, obviously. The listeners are right now. But if you can just visualize, you know, me looking off into the distance with a like, oh shit. Yes. And rubbing my forehead. And it's funny too about this because I love process. I think there's people better at process than I am, but I love process. And pretty often if there's a problem that exists here at the MMA, I'm like, okay, it's a process problem. It's almost always a process problem. Sometimes there's personality things that come in that sort of interferes, but most work stuff is process problem. We didn't have good process. We didn't see the world. We didn't operationalize it. But this is an unbelievable scale that you're talking about. I guess, Heather, the question I'm kind of having in my mind is then, so what is the training for the most effective next generation CMO? Because listen, when you and I grew up, it would have been all about brand. Yep. And then it shifted to digital, right? You and I both made a transition to digital. I was in early from YNR. You were in early in your work with Digitas and beyond, right? Okay. 
Well, I don't know. Was I mean, data analytics, I think, became sort of a big deal, right? Absolutely. And we know from MMA research that customer experience is the winning formula today. In fact, it is very clear that companies are doing well, are fixated on customer experience, and the companies who aren't are focused on something else. It's no longer brand, it's not customer experience. What's the degree you get in operations that would satisfy this? Is there, <laughs> is anybody teaching? Them? What is it? I don't know. I mean, everything is getting more complex. The tools, however, are also going to make it easier to produce more content. Tools are getting a little bit simpler, yeah. right? And yeah, I think yeah. your point about how customer experience leads the way, you need content in order to deliver a good customer experience, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Increasingly, that's personalized content. I think personalization is the answer. I totally agree with you. Exactly. Advertising has historically taught consumers to ignore advertising. It's the worst sin we've committed. Not to mention we wasted your time and we annoyed the shit out of you. That's secondarily almost. It's like the fact that on behalf of shareholders, we chose not to try to increase the effectiveness of our ads because they were more relevant. It just shame on us. I mean, I just, I think it's one of our biggest sins that doesn't get talked about. Yeah. Now that we have mobile with us everywhere, all over the world, a couple of problems there, all day, all night. And we have a greater sense of data. So we, hopefully we know who people are. We're able to even just off a contextual signal, we can find that. Oh my God. How are you ever going to produce 5,000 ads? I, I can't know. even imagine. And then putting the right one in the right place at the right time. Yes. This is, I don't want to, to do a shameless plug right now, but this is where the promise of kind of Adobe's suite of tools comes into play, right? Yeah, this is not a paid podcast, Heather. You can go ahead. That's fine. We're- yeah, exactly. It's actually the fun part of my job is being customer zero. I'm getting to say, okay, how do we connect the dots on all of these content creation tools with the workflows, with resourcing, with asset management, with deployment, with measurement, and how does that all come together much easier and simpler in a way that marketers can just focus on the work and the outcomes versus how to get the work done. Yeah, listen, I'm a super measurement expert. I know almost everything there is to know about measurement. Not all the I, I, t- people on my team are a little more technical than I am, but I, get all, I have no idea how we're measuring this and then optimizing against into the future. I really don't know what that means. It's mind blowing. I mean, I'm looking at whole new dashboards about the velocity of the content production and the volume of assets and the effectiveness of different types of trans creation and localization. Like those are the things that they're, I wouldn't say they're more important than the outcomes, but you can certainly, if you can dial those in and fine tune them and get them optimized, mm-hmm. it certainly can fuel into your efficiency and you can produce a hell of a lot more and do a hell of a lot more good work if you don't have to worry about how it's getting done. Funny, your heritage on this is really back from B-School. So, you know, when you took a class mm-hmm. on, what was it called, yes. business operations, you said? It, yeah, it was just a standard operations 101, practically, yeah. What caught your attention about that class, by the way? Do you remember? I've been, you know, a little while, but. Yeah, I do. I mean, it's so funny. I'll never forget in there, there was a case that we did on Disney World's operations. And you could be there spending half your time in line and, you know, a fraction of your time on a ride or in an experience. But they somehow make it all a wonderful experience oh. so that you don't feel like you're waiting in line. Yeah. Because they're telling you how much time you have left yeah. in line. So you're not like, oh, when am I going to get there? I'm going to get there in two hours and 37 minutes or however long it is. And they're entertaining you along the way with additional content, what have you. And I think those are the things that for me, I was like, wow. There's something about the management of expectations, the communication of expectations along the way. Like, when are you going to get this? Yeah. That makes everybody feel much more comfortable versus marketing can often be seen as a black box. Like, put stuff in. When am I going to get it out? What am I going to get out? And that kind of communications. And, you know, now with some of these tools, having the visibility of where everything falls in line, when I'm going to get it, when I'm going to have to review it. That's a game changer. So I do think that ultimately boils down to customer experience and that lends on operations. So I think that's kind of what has always stuck with me too. There's a story that Rory Sutherland tells, who's out of the UK. I don't know if you've ever seen him do this, but they were at one point, the British rail system was pushing through a $5 billion investment to speed up the trains. This is an ad guy speaking, right? Rory's an ad guy. 
He says, that's the wrong idea. He says, if you were to take a billion of that and hire some of the world's most beautiful people and give them champagne to walk up and down the aisles, nobody would give a shit how long the train took to that, get there. Exactly. <laughs> so. Exactly. Well, and, and by the way, it's funny that you said that you use that example, because what I was thinking of was I lived in New York for 13 years. And when they put the next train coming in three minutes or 13 minutes. Loved it. It was a game changer, game right? Changer. All of a sudden, I wasn't just like, when the hell is the train going to come? It's like, okay, three minutes. I can do this. I can do, you know, whatever. And my expectations were managed. And stand there pissed off like any good exactly. pissed off New Yorker yes. would be. Because <laughs> I still live here. I know what pissed yes. off looks like on the subway. I've seen it. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I think it's the uberfication of MTA or yes. something. No, here, I'm going to tell know. you it's the liftification because that's my uh, my brand DNA. Oh, the liftification. <laughs> sorry, 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 sorry. Lift's no longer on the board, so I picked Uber. So sorry about that. You're right. I should go back there. Let's take a quick break. We'll be back right after this with Heather Freeland. Thanks for listening to Building Better CMOs. If you have a second, I'd like to ask a quick favor. Take your phone out and share this episode with someone else. It's all about making marketers better. You could text it to a coworker or a friend, easy. Or you can post it on LinkedIn and tell people why you liked it. There's one other thing that you can do to help building better CMOs. And that's to leave us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. There's a link to do it in the show notes. However you support us, I really appreciate it. Thank you. This is Greg Stewart. Now back to the show. This is Building Better CMOs. Let's get back to my conversation with Heather Freeland, the Chief Brand Officer at Adobe. Knowing what you know now and what you see, would you wish you'd modified your education in some regard? Or maybe even modified your experience? Like, I'm trying to understand what is the precursor now to becoming the CMO and managing all these trains moving around? I don't know what that job is. It's super interesting. So when I left Facebook, I actually took the initially took the job as VP of strategy and operations at Lyft Mm -hmm. and ultimately was promoted to run all of marketing. And I did it because I specifically knew I needed to fine tune that skill set. And I knew I had done a lot of the work and a lot of the learning at Facebook, but I was like, now is the time to put it to the test at a company that is quickly scaling. And so for me, and that's how I've kind of managed my whole career actually, is I'm going around gathering different skills in each role I have taken. So like at MTV Networks, I took a role building out their vertical ad networks when that was a big thing back in 2008 and building out ad technology because I knew I needed to know more about media. I knew I needed to learn more about sales. I was working with the sales organization. You know, and so same when I went to Lyft, I wanted to really fine tune those operational skills. And not surprisingly, the operational challenges I saw there were not dissimilar to those I saw at Facebook. We're not dissimilar to those I see at Adobe. It is often an afterthought. But when I was at Lyft, I reported into one of our co-founders, John Zimmer, and he, by the end of my time there, he said, I've come to see that whenever I will hire another marketing leader, I need to test for operational skills and savvy. Oh, wow. He figured that out. Yeah. Interesting. Boy, this is a whole nother thing. I, I got to tell you, I think I see a whole new MMA agenda item here, a new think tank for us. I don't know really what it is or what it looks like. Well, I'm happy to help figure that out. <laughs> and listen, this is important to Adobe being able to provide success. So, I mean, it totally would make sense at the energy level that the MMA work on a problem like this. Listen, I, I love too what you just said. And I think it's so much people don't get that. Like there's a lot of paths up the mountain. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep. And I'm guarantee you can't see looking forward what is the best one. You really can't. Just no way. It's only in reflection and looking back that you see how you got to where you did. Yep. It's funny. I have two daughters just graduated from college and the one just started her first. It was her first day of work at NBCU today. Very proud. Ah, that's exciting. Yeah, that exciting? Yeah. Amazing. So here's the question I have for you though around this. What experiences might you tell somebody to look to go after for this? There's two ways you can ask that question. What experiences would you suggest that somebody try to get 
or what are the new capabilities that you're starting to hire for? Is there anything you've changed in your hiring patterns? Have you brought in new roles that maybe you didn't have 10, 15, God forbid, 20 years ago? Talk a little bit about those. Yeah. They're both different angles of the same problem. Yeah. So it's interesting. I mean, I think, and I touched on this a little bit before on kind of my, how I kind of approached my career by gathering different skill sets. And every job I took, I had almost like my learning agenda in mind for that role so that I could kind of go deep in a certain area, whether that was ad tech or sales or creative or what have you. And so I think that has served me well in terms of having a very well-rounded marketing background and perspective, because it is so multifaceted these days. We have to wear so many different hats as marketing leaders. But I think one phrase that always captures it well for me is that when I was at Facebook, they talked about it not being a career ladder, but a career jungle gym. Because you remember those god awful like <laughs> dodecahedron like jungle gyms from when you were little, and you could, there was no straight path. You had to kind of crawl all around to get to the I top. I need and, you to even try to visualize that. I saw it right away. I totally, yep, yep got it. You have to take different turns. Yes, and that will not just help you gain skills across the board, but will also help you figure out what you're good at, what your passion is, right? What you love, and you're inherently going to be better at something you love and get excited about too. So it's important to find that, particularly if you're more junior in your career. So for me, that was a big part of it. Now, to your other half of your question in terms of what I look for when I'm hiring someone, I think that the key things I look for, and you know, it depends on the role. I actually interviewed a candidate this morning and two questions are pretty common no matter what role I'm interviewing for. And one is ability to kind of influence and partner cross-functionally. And I think for marketers, that is absolutely critical because we are such an inherently cross-functional organization. We have to navigate with IT, with product, with finance, and within marketing, and you need to know how to influence. We are no longer managing a function. We are managing a coalition. Yes, that is spot on, spot on. And so that is one. And then the other is ability to turn an idea to action, which is operations, right? How do you make things happen and get them out the door smoothly and easily? And so I do think those are literally, I kind of have questions I ask in those territories because I think it's critical for people to know how to execute and get things done in an efficient way. And then I often ask as a follow-on to that, how do you optimize that? How do you constantly improve that and adapt that? Because you need to have flexibility because things are changing so fast right now in our worlds. You know, I think we could do a whole session on just that one topic right there and all the attributes to it. So did you set out to be a CMO? Was that the goal? Uh, Did you just kind of stumble upon it? And what did you do? So uh, given that also too, that back to your jungle gym metaphor, (laughs) not a career ladder, but a jungle gym, talk a little bit about how you got there. Yeah. I mean, I absolutely kind of set my eyes on that goal earlier on in my career. And that was why I approached it the way that I did in terms of kind of collecting the skills that I knew I, I would need in that capacity. It's also why even when I went to business school, I actually did not concentrate in marketing. I concentrated in management and diversified my classes in accounting, in finance, in operations, in leadership, because I knew that a lot of the marketing stuff I would learn on the job. It was more about knowing and understanding how to work within an organization and how to talk the talk of all the other functions at coalition, as you mentioned. So I think for me, it was kind of the pivot I made to business school and then going to Digitas and getting exposure to incredible brands I had the opportunity to work with you know, Nike and American Express and Converse. So it was just a best-in-class training model in working with a great brand. And it was also the forefront for both American Express and Nike in thinking about digital transformation. So that was an incredible time to be there. And then going from there to MTV Networks to diversify my understanding of how to work with a sales organization, which is critical as a marketer to understand that dynamic. 
to really dig in deep on media, media sales, and even ad tech. But the reason I actually took that job was because I kind of had this vision of if you're a good CMO, you have to operate more like a general manager than you do a functional expert. And so part of my role there was as a general manager of this new ad network business we were starting up. And it really widened my perspective in a new way. And then ultimately, I got offered the CMO role at Guilt City and had an opportunity to then take on brand marketing at the Guilt Group, which was an incredible training ground for working in a fast-moving startup. And then at Facebook, had the chance to really put that all on a global stage and put that to work. Did you hesitate to go to Facebook at 2,500 people, by the way? It was pretty, that would have been pretty early on. In fact, you went there in 2011, so they had not made the full-on pivot to mobile at that point. No. In fact, the first product I launched was mobile ads. Oh my God. Yes. So I started, I had no time off from guilt to Facebook because we had this product we were going to launch. And, you know, we used to joke that the only ads on Facebook would have been on your thumb because we didn't have any ads in newsfeed at the time. So they were only on the right hand side. And so my first task at Facebook was literally launching mobile ads. And that was just an incredible time to be there and to be a part of the transformation of the industry. Incredible time. Yeah. No, listen, Carolyn Everson, who served on the board of the MMA for years and years and years, and I think one of the MMA's biggest uh, supporters. Who was a dear partner and close partner. Oh my God, had to be just totally, completely connected the hip kind of situation. I know. But she used to talk a lot at the board about how hard it was to make that transition, that it wasn't a given at any point in time and and how hard the company- And her point was that you should say in board meetings, because listen, if it's hard for Facebook and we are founder led and can move and we're, you know, we're a fast moving company. What does this mean for like Unilever and other companies? How hard that's going to be? I remember it incredibly clearly where Mark stood up in Hacker Square, which was the kind of main square on campus at the time and declared we were going to be a mobile first company. And I tell you, it was like a master class in change management at the company. And it happened on every level from retraining engineers to be mobile first to new incentives and training programs and L&D and marketing and everything all along the way in terms of shifting the company. And it was amazing to have a front row seat on that. Yeah, totally, totally, totally. Listen, you've been at a number of different companies who have their own particular cultures. I mean, in fact, as I look at the list, some of them are pretty radically different cultures, I would expect. So if you were to give advice to others who fall in your shoes, what what does it mean to sort of continue to operate at the C-suite level, to be effective within those roles? What's your lessons learned? I mean, I think for me, there's probably three things, two of which may not be expected. And one, I think, is you have to be incredibly well prepared and know your shit. I mean, honestly, the amount of prep I do for meetings and knowing the ins and outs of what's happening is a lot. (laughs) Dara Tresseter said the same thing on Friday. She was like all over that. She was like, oh my gosh. She goes, I am the most prepared person you will ever meet, is what she said. You have to be. Have to be. And then you have to be able to clearly articulate and have a point of view. Mm. And so I think having a point of view is critical. Yeah. But the two, I will say, that are not often thought of, but are huge, particularly in terms of leading a broader organization, a large complex organization, are kindness and gratitude. And it is not always what you would expect, but I find time and time again that I can build deep partnerships by listening, by extending help and support, by taking a meeting from someone who needs help or to bounce an idea off of me and to be generous with my time. And I find that that has built deeper trusts and partnerships and that enables me to get more done. So I think that, and then the last one is gratitude because I do think none of being a good leader happens without an army of people standing there with you. And making sure that they know they are appreciated, that they know their work matters, and that it is seen and that they are seen as individuals is really critical. And so I'm a big believer in practicing gratitude. 
So that's practicing gratitude for the team. I got that. What about your own orientation towards gratitude or where you are? Like, how do you keep yourself pointed in the right direction? Listen, it's hard under the pressures of business sometimes to show up and be full of kindness and gratitude. I mean, I, I live in New York City. There, Those are not virtues here. No, so, no. I, I mean, it's, it's, I always say it starts at home, right? So we have a moment, I have a seven-year-old and a nine-year-old and every night our bedtime routine. And even if I'm traveling, they call because uh-huh. they have to get the question in, which is, what was your favorite part of the day? And we spend a moment talking about what mattered to us and what we are grateful for. And having that moment to just reflect on what I'm grateful for, because I have to answer the question too. And some days it's hard. (laughs) It's hard to have a good answer to that one. (laughs) But it is a reminder to be appreciative of the opportunities you've been given and that you're learning every day, that you're growing every day. And I think it's really important. There are actually studies done that the art of practicing gratitude has very real physiological benefits to your physical health as much as your mental health. So I am a huge believer in that. I did this with my team at Lyft and I've brought this here to Adobe too, where we have thank you Thursdays and we start in our Slack channel and I start posting a thank you to someone on the team. It could have been a big project they led. It could have been a little thing. They organized an event for the team, whatever it is, or I just saw them reach across the aisle to help someone on whatever it was. But the idea is that they then have to pass it on. So they then reply in the thread. Oh, so you thank somebody. I thank someone, and then they thank someone, then they thank someone, they they thank someone. And it is the number of emojis and gifts that light up that Slack channel on Thursdays is heartwarming, but it just feeds this culture of gratitude across the team. And I think that's really important for all of us to kind of be grateful for what we have and reflect on our accomplishments and what it took to get them done. It's usually not just you. It's someone else who helped you accomplish that. Well, you kind of identified it early on here, right? It takes larger than a village. It feels like a small metropolitan city in yes. order to get any advertising campaign or <laughs> that marketing sure. campaign done. Yep. And so that's a lot of gratitude to go around. Hey, let me ask you a funny question of that too. And then we'll sort of move on here. What happens when they just don't get it right? What ha- it's hard to be grateful when they just mess it all up. Here's the thing. I think 99.9% of the time, intentions are good. Everyone is generally well-intentioned. I do think when something goes wrong, it has to be called out. But I also think you have to do it with compassion and understanding. This is a human that you were talking to who has very real feelings. They need to understand what went wrong. But you also need to do it in a way that demonstrates, hey, listen, I care about you. I care about the outcome. This may have messed up. But I'm giving you this feedback because I care about you and I care about the outcome. And that's an important reorientation. Wow, I love that. I love that. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, hard to do sometimes in the moment. It's funny, what I notice is that if I can take the time to find out how they got to where they did, it does at some level make sense. I try to remember that. Like at some level, if I probe, almost always I'll go, Oh, I see how you got there. It's yes. not right. Yes. But I see how you got there. <laughs> so so we have a foundation problem here. We have an objective problem here. We have a goal problem here. We have a aiming for the usually it's aiming for the wrong thing. They thought this is the right idea. And it's like, no, 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 your goal, your anchor's over here, I think, on this one. So and and usually or or find out I'm wrong. Well, and then the key is learning from it too. And you got to learn from it. So how are we going to do this differently next time so this doesn't happen again? How are we going to instantly pivot this to improvement, not wallowing in our misery? <laughs> but I love that. Care about you and the outcome. Okay, a couple of quick rounds. We're going to wrap up and let you out of here. Okay, you ready? Great. So yes. who in marketing, it can't be anybody there in Adobe, okay, or your agency, okay. for example. Okay, who in marketing, who has a marketing person or company do you kind of admire? Whose work do you really like? Who out there do you kind of, you've had a chance to interact with, you think is just phenomenal? It could be historical in your experience. Just pick on somebody or company. I'm not sure if you're watching anybody else's work right now, but. Yeah. I mean, I have to give a nod to Ann Lunas. 
She's no longer at Adobe, so I can mention her. She's the greatest of all time. I know. And, you know, I joined Adobe because of her and I had watched her career for so long and watched what she did to transform this company and build the brand. And so absolutely top of my list. I do think the person now who I love to follow is not a marketer from the beginning, but has evolved into it is an feel like everyone must be saying this name now is Ryan Reynolds. Mm. And I am currently watching Welcome to Wrexham and they have season two out. And increasingly marketing is not about advertising, but is about really authentic connections with brands. And I think that show is a masterclass in bringing brands to life in meaningful ways through storytelling and where you never once feel you're being marketed about at all, yet here I am drinking aviation gin. <laughs> so I, d- I think there's just some incredible thinking, and I love that he's not a marketer, and he's forcing all of us as marketers to think differently. And, you know, Anne, if I just little call out to Ann Looney's there, first off, I agree. I mean, Ryan's done an amazing job. It's incredible. It's sort of the value creation he's done for himself and his shareholders is just phenomenal. Yeah. But um, Ann Looney's, I love, she is a graduate of the Bronx High School of Science and Technology. I know. And I love that. When yes. I found that out, I was like, I admired her double when I heard that out. Because, listen, I can't imagine 30, whatever, 40, I don't know, sorry, Ann, years ago, being a young girl in a tech high school like that. I mean, I live in New York. Those are very hard schools to get into. And so all straight cut here. Okay. What might be most overhyped in marketing today? This is controversial, but I'm going to say advertising. Oh, counter. Okay. Okay. Yes. Even though that is my job, I think increasingly, I mean, you touched on it before with customer experiences, but I think increasingly marketing should not be about advertising, but should be about showing up authentically as a part of culture. Totally. And I talk to my team a lot about how do we become part of the cultural ether so that we are a natural part of the next generation's days, lives, the things they care about, the work they do, instead of just interrupting their experiences with advertising. I, you know what, Heather, I hear you on that. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I love advertising. It's what I grew up with, but you're right. Maybe it- I know, me too. Maybe it's time <laughs> we put it aside a little bit. Okay, well, there's another problem for you. Maybe work on. Okay, what's most underappreciated marketing? I think I know what it's going to be. What's most underappreciated? Operations. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> that was too much of a setup. So uh, I guess this was everybody just go listen to before. If you just if you just replay that, then you're all set. Heather, listen, I am finding these in general to be the most fun. And I love people like you have a, just a strong point of view based on the experience of what is right in the world and how we need to be better. Oh my God, I could listen to that kind of thing all day long. So I can't <laughs> thank you enough for being on Building Better CMOs. Thank you. Oh, well, thank you. I've had a lot of fun too. Thanks again to Heather Freeland from Adobe for coming on Building Better CMOs. Check the description of this episode for links to connect with Heather. And if you want to know more about MMA's work to unlock the power of marketing, visit MMAglobal.com. Or you can attend any one of our 30 conferences in 15 countries where MMA operates, or really write me, Greg, at MMAglobal.com. Thank you so much for listening. Tap the link in the show notes to leave us a review. And if you're new to the show, please follow or subscribe on Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, iHeart, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can find links to all those places and more at bettercmos.com. Our producer and podcast consultant is Eric Johnson from lightningpod.fm. Artwork is by Jason Chase. And a very special thanks to LaSara Smith. This is Greg Stewart. I'll see you again in two weeks.